Transmitting live from the top of the Empire State Building on WBAI 99.5 FM, Pacifica Radio, New York, this is Trump Watch, a weekly series investigating the actions of and reactions to President Donald J. Trump and his administration. I'm your host, Jesse Lent. Conrad Tokyo, Sparrow, Pistachio, just unnatural, dog is off sabbatical, rather watch an exigent, politician, politician, CNN and all this, Juan, yo, move with your f***er, Trump and an SNL hilarity, troublesome times, kid, no time for Conrad. Hello and welcome to Trump Watch. Tonight on the show, we'll be discussing the ramifications of President Trump's proposed ban on transgender Americans in the armed services with Nathaniel Frank, the director of Columbia Law School's What We Know Project, a research initiative that collects scholarship on the LGBTQ public policy, and the author of Unfriendly Fire, How the Gay Ban Undermines the Military and Weakens America. His editorial, Unit Cohesion, Isn't a Real Reason to Ban Trans People from the Military, was published yesterday on Slate.com. Then we'll discuss whether transgendered soldiers actually have been shown to decrease unit cohesion with Alexander Downs, an associate professor of political science and international affairs at George Washington University, where he teaches courses on international security and military effectiveness. His article, Would Transgender Troops Harm Military Effectiveness? Here's what the research says, was published Tuesday in The Washington Post. On July 26th, when President Trump announced on Twitter without warning a White House press release or any accompanying policy guidelines that he was planning to ban transgender soldiers from serving in the military, he provoked confusion on all sides as to how the government should or will proceed. After consultation with my generals and military experts, please be advised that the United States government will not accept or allow transgender individuals to serve in any capacity in the U.S. military, the president wrote on Twitter. Our military must be focused on decisive and overwhelming victory and cannot be burdened with the tremendous medical costs and disruption that transgender in the military would entail. Thank you. Unquote. The day after Trump's tweet, as reported by Foreign Policy, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Joseph Dunford, the country's highest-ranking uniform military officer, issued a letter to the service chiefs, commanders, and senior enlisted leaders of each service branch. The letter read, I know there are questions about yesterday's announcement on the transgender policy by the president. There will be no modifications to the current policy until the president's direction has been received by the secretary of defense and the secretary has issued implementation guidance. In the meantime, we will continue to treat all of our personnel with respect. As importantly, given the current fight and the challenges we face, we must all remain focused on accomplishing our assigned mission. On Tuesday, Reuters reported that 56 retired U.S. generals, admirals, and other senior officers voiced opposition to President Donald Trump's announcement of the ban, saying that the ban would be disruptive and degrade readiness. Though it is yet to be enforced, the commander-in-chief has historically had considerable latitude on military policy in the U.S., So what will the ban, or what would the ban, mean for the thousands of transgender soldiers that are currently on active duty? Or for the already dwindling military enrollment numbers? And is there any merit to the president's claim that transgender service members are a burden? We have two back-to-back interviews tonight to break down this multi-tiered subject. I hope you enjoy them. 
The first is Nathaniel Frank, the author of the Slate editorial, Unit Cohesion Isn't a Real Reason to Ban Trans People from the Military, followed by Alexander Downs, who wrote the Washington Post op-ed, Would Transgender Troops Harm Military Effectiveness? Here's what the research says. Both articles were published Tuesday. I spoke to both of them earlier today. My guest is Nathaniel Frank, the director of Columbia Law School's What We Know Project, a research initiative that collects scholarship on LGBTQ public policy, and he's the author of Unfriendly Fire, How the Gay Ban Undermines the Military and Weakens America. His editorial unit, Cohesion Isn't a Real Reason to Ban Trans People from the Military, was published on Slate on August 1st. Welcome to Trump Watch. Thank you so much for joining me, Nathaniel. It's good to be here. When President Trump announced the ban on transgender soldiers serving in the U.S. military, he cited the, quote, tremendous medical costs and disruption that transgender service members cause as his reason for doing so. You write that, quote, the unprecedented nature of such a groundless attack by the commander in chief against his own troops is so breathtaking that it's difficult to know where to begin dismantling such claims. Well, let's start with the disruption issue. Uh, You've done a considerable amount of research in this area. Why is that particular attack groundless? Well, even under the don't ask, don't tell policy for gay, lesbian, bisexual soldiers uh, and service members, there was never an instance where the commander-in-chief um, announced a policy that would, in effect, be rounding up thousands of currently serving troops and firing them. Um, there, were, there were times when um, some gay service members, because they were outed in, the, uh, in passing, were airlifted home, and, and that was a terrible policy for that reason. But we've never seen something like this where the commander-in-chief for purely avowed political reasons, um, essentially made a policy in passing that would involve um, rounding up over 10,000 troops who are serving capably and getting rid of them. And so that's what I meant about the breathtaking attack on the troops. There is an enormous amount of research uh, showing that, that trans service works and that LGBT service works. Uh, And so there's nothing going on here but um, politics, and that's important to bring to light. What about the issue of medical costs? Is that something that the data you've seen have borne out? I assume the president is referring to transgender soldiers that are transitioning? Um, Probably so. It's a a clear red herring and an obvious double standard. So there are people, um, social conservatives in particular, who like to single out medical costs for transgender care. And the reality is that transgender service members are, are no different and don't have categorically different health care needs than anyone else. Um, the RAND Corporation, which is a think tank closely allied with the military that has done uh, research for them on a number of personnel policy issues over decades, has found that at most transgender care would cost about $8 million a year, which is uh, one one-hundredth of 1% of the overall $50 billion military health care budget. And as the Washington Post screened in the headline, the military spends five times more than that on providing Viagra for its service members. So you can single out anybody's health care needs and say, it's too expensive, we shouldn't use it. But 
the the service members um, who put their lives on the line for us have earned health care, and no one should be singled out and denied health care in the military for reasons that have nothing to do with uh, performance or, or, you know, an actual assessment of cost. And to be clear, you're talking about the costs of active service members. The Viagra costs are five times higher than the cost for transgender soldiers? Right. It may be active and reserve, but uh, reserve, depending on your status, uh, reservists can have limited access to military health care. So most people focus on the active, but that is, as far as I know, the combined figure. When you first heard the news of the president's uh, announcement to attempt to ban transgender people from serving in the military. Uh, what went through your mind? Well, I, uh, I said to myself, couldn't he have waited uh, a little while longer so that um, p- people who have moved within the military and within the ad- advocacy community to bring to light all of these facts rather than the myths that are circulating around on the Internet um, could have made their positions clear and could have brought this research to light. I mean, look, it was a, a, a horrific thing for the president to do at any point, and he shouldn't have done it. And it seems highly likely that there was very little thought that went into it. I'm not even sure if President Trump is aware that there are already thousands of transgender service members um, serving, um, partly because they have always been serving, often in the closet, and partly because um, under President Obama, during his last year of office, he lifted the ban on currently serving transgender service members, just not yet on new recruits. So it seems that the president was trying to throw a bone to his conservative base and trying to uh, grease the wheels for various bills in Congress that he wanted and simply said what he said um, possibly without knowing the actual status of transgender service members currently serving. And according to your article, that number of uh, U.S. troops who are transgendered is 12,800, right? Right. There's a range of estimates, and they're only estimates, but they're very good projections. Uh, The RAND Corporation has done one that has put the range between about 3,000 or uh, between two and 3,000 actively serving all the way up to 11,000. The Williams Institute, which does great demographic research, put the number at 15,000, but that figure is a few years old, and the military um, overall figures are down a little bit. So Aaron Belkin at the Palm Center, where I consult, wrote an article in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, it's a prestigious peer-reviewed journal, that put the number at 12,800, and that's sort of the, the figure we go with. But that's very significant, and the idea of rounding them up and discharging them that itself would probably cost around a billion dollars because of the cost of replacing uh, ably serving troops. The, the Army is spending, I think, uh, $300 million this year because they have a 6,000-person shortfall of soldiers. And so they're spending that on advertising and enlistment bonuses. And so the idea that the $8 million projected cost for health care, uh, when pitted against the billion-dollar cost and disruption, Uh, of rounding up these service members and getting rid of them for no reason is is astounding. Yes, that was a bit vague, just the word disruption. Uh, How do you read that term in President Trump's reasoning? Well, it's kind of ironic because Trump came to office promising disruption, and Steve Bannon, one of his chief chief strategists, likes that word. And so you you wonder if it was just on his uh, his mind. Um, 
But it's, you know, the way the president and then Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the new press secretary, just sort of muttered in passing these platitudes about disruption, readiness, unit cohesion. Um, it's as if, and this is certainly possible, they haven't been paying attention to the last 30 years of debate about this sort of thing, about the fact that the military is always changing um, its its regulations, its culture, in order to keep up with the way the culture it serves, the culture around it, evolves. You can't have a large gap between the military and the civilian sector because they serve one another, they draw from one another. Um, and, you know, this is what happened with African-American integration, with women in combat, and, and with LGBT service members, that it's always been a staging ground for cultural debates about who is able and who should be a first-class citizen. And we have found in the research that it's discrimination that causes disruptions and equality that is the best recipe for readiness. But the, the president and his administration, not surprisingly, is, is probably both ignorant of that debate and those facts and, and also incurious and doesn't care. Um, and so it just seems that this is one more instance of the administration and the president in particular skewing forth something that makes him feel good and maybe seems to cater to the base without any moment of concern for the sweeping impact that it is likely to have on thousands of lives. You're known for your efforts that helped lead to the elimination of the military's don't ask, don't tell policy in 2011. Uh, where LGBTQ troops were barred from any admission or demonstration of their sexual preference. Do you believe that President Trump's decision to ban transgender people from military service is in any way a response to the elimination of Don't Ask, Don't Tell by President Obama? Well, I think he's come to office trying to reverse President Obama's legacy and policies and values in every way that he can. And it's also a classic... Um, playbook for autocrats and dictators is to whip up fears and anxiety and hatred against vulnerable minorities in order to consolidate his power around the things that he wants to do. Um, and so in that regard, sure, I think that President Trump is trying to reverse Obama's legacy and send a clear signal to his space and to social conservatives that he has the power to do that and that he is, is with them and that he's going to you know, show his colors this way. Um, and so, uh, that said, I've been heartened by the response by um, all kinds of sectors around this debate, including conservatives who voted for Trump and who are commented in the news saying, I voted for the guy, but I don't think you should go after your own troops for no reason and round them up and get rid of them. That's a step too far. The military itself is saying we don't have clear direction on this. We stand by our troops. They will take orders if and when they evolve to, to an actionable policy, you know, which, by the way, a tweet does not. Um, but the culture, you know, in, in the culture, this issue has really been won. A majority of the American people now say that not only gay, lesbian, bisexual service members should be able to serve openly, but transgender people, too. And that's having an impact. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. 
My guest has been Nathaniel Frank, the director of Columbia Law School's What We Know Project, a research initiative collecting scholarship on LGBTQ public policy, and the author of Unfriendly Fire, How the Gay Ban Undermines the Military and Weakens America. His editorial unit cohesion isn't a real reason to ban trans people from the military, was published on Slate.com on August 1st. You're listening to Trump Watch on WBAI 99.5 FM, Pacifica Radio, New York. I'm Jesse Lent. Joining me now is Alexander Downs, an associate professor of political science and international affairs at George Washington University, where he teaches courses on international security and military effectiveness. His article, Would Transgender Troops Harm Military Effectiveness? Here's What the Research Says, was published yesterday in the Washington Post. Hello, Alex. Welcome to Trump Watch. Great to have you on. Thanks very much for having me. I'm glad to be here. In your Washington Post article, you write, Trump claimed that allowing transgender people to serve would be disruptive to a military that must be focused on decisive and overwhelming victory. It was left to Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders to translate the meaning of disruptive, the presence of transgender people in the military, quote, erodes military readiness and unit cohesion. But these statements rely on two myths, that diversity reduces unit cohesion and that unit cohesion enhances military effectiveness. In fact, there is little evidence for either, unquote. What evidence did you find that specifically disproves the idea that diversity reduces unit cohesion in the military? Sure. Well, so there's a, just to start, there's a long history of sort of excluding different groups uh, from military service on the grounds that it would somehow disrupt the cohesiveness of, of combat units. Um, obviously, the, the first example of that was uh, African-Americans. Uh, there's been a debate recently, a continuing debate over the integration of women into combat units, uh, and certainly the don't ask, don't tell uh, policy about uh, gays and lesbians uh, from the 1990s and so on. Um, the problem uh, with the concern uh, uh, for excluding groups like this is that there's very little evidence that diversity in groups uh, reduces uh, cohesion, right? So uh, when uh, blacks were actually integrated into the U.S. military um, uh, during World War II, black replacements, uh, black soldiers were used as replacements in, in white combat units uh, after D-Day in Europe. Uh, surveys after the war conducted by the Army found that uh, the vast majority of both white officers and non-commissioned officers found, said that black and white soldiers had gotten along perfectly well. There had been very little uh, issue with the, co- the cohesion of units, so how well they, they got along with each other. Um, there have been uh, a number of studies conducted um, looking you know, uh, at... Uh, the integration of women, uh, of gays, and and of transgender people, which is, of course, the the topic of the day. And uh, both in the U.S. military and other militaries around the world, and none of them have been able to come up with any evidence uh, 
that shows that somehow the cohesiveness or readiness of, of units is lowered. Um, and that's in large part because the broader sort of social scientific research on this uh, shows that there's, there's not much connection between diversity in groups uh, and their cohesiveness. You can form groups on the flimsiest of, of pretexts. Um, so my favorite example of this is the, the brown eyes, blue eyes experiments uh, that were done uh, and the many sort of replications of this sort of minimal group paradigm that have been done by psychologists over the years. Just simply dividing people on the flimsiest pretext. Oh, brown-eyed people are smarter than blue-eyed people. Immediately, people start to discriminate against people in the other group and favor members of their of their in-group. Um, and so, just in, in terms of both studies of the military in particular and also broader psychological studies, just hasn't been able to find evidence uh, that diversity damages cohesion. And you make the distinction that it's task cohesion, not unit cohesion, uh, and task cohesion being types of uh, people from all different backgrounds and ethnicities coming together for a shared purpose, uh, that this seems to be more productive than the camaraderie that comes with being with other soldiers that are similar to oneself. What evidence did you find to support that idea? Um, so, yeah, there's a difference. The, the literature sort of differentiates between the social cohesion, which is what most people think about when they think of cohesion, which is sort of friendship, camaraderie, socialization, um, for which having similar backgrounds facilitates that, versus task cohesion, which is your ability to perform uh, a certain task together as a group. Um, and as I said, Similarity of background facilitates social social cohesion and socialization, becoming friends, but it's pretty much uh, uh, unrelated to the ability to perform a task. What really matters there is is people uh, sharing a dedication to actually carrying out whatever the mission is, whether it's intelligence, uh, reconnaissance, uh, combat, um, uh, and um, it's the sort of shared background or, or friendship uh, is not necessary. You can bring together all kinds of different diverse people uh, to uh, to perform different tasks, and they're able to do it quite well. And one of the things that is highly uh, uh, correlated with uh, cohesion is actually success, right? So people often make the argument that some cohesion increases the likelihood of good performance. But actually, most studies show the reverse, right? That performing well as a group makes you more cohesive. Um, and it's task cohesion that's correlated with performing well rather than social cohesion. So if, as you found, the evidence does not support uh, the president's move to a transgender ban in the military, what do you believe is the real reason behind this action? Well, when it comes to reading the president's mind, that's a difficult task. Um, of course. Uh, I mean, what he said in his tweets, and again, we're sort of interpreting, you know, policy by tweet here, which is never optimal, um, was he appealed to two things. One was the cost of having uh, transgender people, the, the financial cost of having transgender people in the military, i.e., which he portrayed as very large, but which studies uh, have shown is actually very, very minimal, because um, uh, they were going to be requiring special treatments and so on and so forth. Uh, this has been shown to be pretty much a canard. But the second principle 
uh, he appealed to was this cohesion idea that transgender would be uh, disruptive to unit cohesion. Um, and I tried to show that, that this was didn't have much basis, but it's the thing that, that people appeal to when they want to exclude some group that they don't like. Uh, so one, you know, could draw the conclusion that uh, Trump has certain constituencies that he wants to keep on board uh, that uh, oppose the, the integration and open service of, of transgender people uh, in the U.S. military. And so he's sort of appealing to that base by trying to promulgate this policy change, which is only a year old. It's only been a year that uh, transgender people have been allowed to openly serve. You complete your article with the statement, none of this scholarship supports the contention that small unit cohesion improves battlefield performance. The fact that the Pentagon is not rushing to implement Trump's proposed transgender ban suggests that the U.S. military may finally be learning this lesson. Can you talk about the U.S. military response to the president's declaration via Twitter uh, that he will ban uh, transgender uh, people from serving in the military? And why do you take uh, the military response as a positive sign? So I didn't, I should clarify what I meant there. I don't mean to imply that the U.S. military is being insubordinate uh, at this time. They're not, because Trump is not, the administration has not issued a, a formal document that uh, that directs the military to implement a ban like this. So what the president did was announce a policy change by social media. And what the Joint Chiefs and the, the, the Secretary of Defense's office came out and said is, well, we don't regard that as a, as a formal uh, order. Right? So we're just going to continue with current policy, business as usual, until such time as a formal you know, authoritative directive from, from the White House. And that still hasn't come uh, several days later, right? So I think, um, and even if it does come, there will be a, a series of, you know, the, the military, the Pentagon will get its, will get its input, will get to be able to, to have some input uh, on, you know, give their views on the policy, whether they think it's wise, how it might be implemented. Um, but it's clear that um, the, the current military leadership, as well as a lot of retired officers who you may have seen wrote an open letter yesterday uh, opposing the ban uh, as disruptive to unit cohesion, uh, are not, you know, jumping out of their chairs to uh, want to implement uh, the policy. And you, you may have seen the, the commandant of the Coast Guard announced yesterday that he was uh, he didn't come right out and say he would resist a ban, but he was he said that he opposed it and wanted to and he his first call was to reach out to one of the transgender sailors that he knew and saying we're we're going to support you and uh, we want to keep our valued uh, troops who have who we've trained and have high skills. Uh, right. This is Admiral uh, Paul F. Zuncuff. That's right. That's he right. Told the New York Times he would continue to support transgender troops under his command. Right. So the military is sort of in a wait and see mode. Right. They haven't received a formal uh, directive from the White House. If and when it comes, though, I mean, I have to emphasize that the, the president, as the commander in chief of the armed forces, has the authority to initiate policy changes like this. Um, the Pentagon and the armed services will get their say. But ultimately, the authority rests with him, and then military leaders will face a choice, right? They, they will either salute 
and carry out the order, uh, or they will have other choices to make. Um, sometimes you see resignations uh, in instances like this, but I have no idea sort of uh, what the reaction, the broader reaction would be uh, if the, the policy actually comes down uh, and is official. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks. It was a pleasure to talk to you. My guest has been Alexander Downs, an associate professor of political science and international affairs at George Washington University, where he teaches courses on international security and military effectiveness. His article, Would Transgender Troops Harm Military Effectiveness? Here's What the Research Says, was published on August 1st in the Washington Post. You're listening to Trump Watch on WBAI, 99.5 FM, Pacifica Radio, New York. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. This program was engineered live by Reggie Johnson. You can hear all 36 episodes of Trump Watch with Jesse Lent at soundcloud.com slash trumpwatchwbai or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter and contact me directly at the email address jesse at wbai.org. And I'll be back next Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. when we'll break down another aspect of the Donald Trump administration. Until then, I'm your host, Jesse Lent. Talk to you next time. Conrad, Tokyo, Sparrow, Pistachio, just done national. Dog is off sabbatical. Rather watch an attention. Politician, politics. CNN and all this. Guanyo, move.